Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and today we're going to dive in primary healthcare policy comparison of the UK, US, New Zealand, and Australia. Dr. Dimitri Varsamis is Senior Policy Lead for Digital Primary Care at NHS England. End of 2020, he published a report titled Incentives and Levers for Digitizing and Integrating Primary Care in New Zealand, Australia and the United States, Lessons for the UK's NHS. Dr. Versamis researched primary care digitalization prior to the global coronavirus pandemic. Among other things, he noted that in Australia, people are not required to register with a GP or practice. Consequently, they see multiple GPs. This can impact the continuity and integrity of their medical records. He also noticed that, compared to the United States, the public healthcare systems of Australia, New Zealand and the UK lack the expertise in change management and purchasing support. I invited him to the show to discuss his findings. So in the upcoming discussion, you will hear a bit more about the structure of the British NHS and Dimitri's findings about different approaches to healthcare digitalization of primary care. Do enjoy the discussion, and to learn more, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now, to Dimitri. Dimitri, you just finished a report about incentives and levers for digitizing and integrating primary care in New Zealand, Australia and the United States, learning from lessons for the, U- the UK's NHS. How did your perspective of the UK's healthcare system change after you finished this research? So if you try to compare your perception of the system before and after this research. I should start by saying that actually, although I have tried to generalize some of the things I've learned to the UK NHS, we do effectively run four separate NHSs in the UK, the English, Scottish, Welsh, and the one in Northern Ireland. So the majority of the content, and of course my experience, is, is on the English NHS. However, the funding body of the research I undertook, the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, expects and wants, of course, uh, findings to be relevant to the whole of the UK. So my expertise really, therefore, is in England specifically. Now, in terms of what did I find different in my perspective before and after? 
Well, you know, I often talk to digital health entrepreneurs uh, over the years here in England or the UK, and I, I often have to explain to them that there is no such thing as a single NHS. Not only are they four, but also within England, for example, there are lots of different bodies and organizations uh, with NHS in their name, uh, with separate budgets, strategies, making their own decisions, both in geography, but also in kind of specialism, if you like, primary care versus hospital and so on. So once you take some time actually to compare in depth with elsewhere, what I saw is that on the whole, at the national level, yes, our system is not too dissimilar, say, to the New Zealand one or to some of the smaller healthcare ecosystems as in the US. But what we do lack are some of the best of the best exemplars of digital and integrated care I saw in those two countries. I have a lot of questions uh, here. One is that when you said that there are so much entities in the NHS, one thing that I thought would be fun to ask was there's two digital health-related organizations in the UK, NHS Digital and NHS X. Can you tell me what the difference between them is? Yeah, so I, I work closely with both. And I work at NHS England, and in some ways, and or NHS England, an improvement, as we now are known as. NHS Digital has existed for a while or in previous uh, names, such as the Health and Social Care Information Center, NHSX is a much newer entity, only in place for a, less than a couple of years. The main difference is that NHSX is trying to bring together the strategy, the policy of why to digitize, if you like. And NHS Digital is then the body that is meant to do the digitization or develop the standards, develop the guidance on the local system on how to do it. The first one is more about awareness and bringing stakeholders together. And the second one is more about actually doing things. That sounds wrong, but you know what I mean? It's true. Yes. NHSX is always trying to create the vision of why we need to digitize and what to de digitize. And then NHS Digital is the body that is expected to develop the how. I have one guess that I'd like to make, and that is that from the four systems that you analyzed, is primary care in the United States most digitized since the U.S. is the largest digital health market in the world? So the U.S., healthcare system is definitely the most digitized. To what extent their primary care is, it's more complicated than that. I would probably say the UK's one is. However, yes, when you look at very piecemeal, the US care system is the most digitized. And also when you look comprehensively uh, within healthcare systems in the US. So it's less about the primary care in its own and it's more about how primary care interacts or works with the rest of the system. In both of those two counts, the U.S. primary care system, both internally and then how it works with others, was the most digitized. I saw really interesting solutions, and I mean solutions with a true sense of the word, i.e. somebody trying to, having a problem and trying to fix it. There was a company I came across called Heal that brings together, for example, remote monitoring and home visits. Two separate things 
in most other healthcare systems. But the U.S. primary care and community care system, somebody was trying to find how to bring those together equally. When it comes to healthcare systems in the U.S., such as the Kaiser Permanente and the Veterans Health Administration, or some of the more localized healthcare systems, usually associated with the universities and very big medical university uh, centers, University uh, UCLA, University of Southern California, again, use a really good primary care digitized in its interface with the rest of the, basically the hospital care. Now, that might sound simplistic, but I don't, dare I say, most of the world, perhaps, we don't have such digitization of primary care and community care and hospital care, all of them working, if you like, together. What were your expectations and assumptions regarding what you will discover? What differences between countries did you notice? Because, for example, in the UK, GPs tend to work for NHS practices with limited private practice, and the vast majority of people tend to be registered with an NHS practice. In contrast, in Australia, people can visit multiple GPs, which adds to additional problems of having a comprehensive medical record. So going from from that kind of perspective, did you have a lot of hypotheses before you started the research on the ground? What surprised you? Some of my expectations and assumptions. So I knew Australia had really good, or patients in Australia had really good access to primary care. But actually what I then realized was that that wasn't necessarily from a digital perspective. Equally, in the US, and that actually plays a lot about my assumptions or misunderstanding, I had assumed that the US healthcare system and primary care and its digitization would be not terribly good. And that's because of how we perceive the whole of the population level health and healthcare in the US, if you like. So... Having said that, I definitely saw some of the best care ever in the US, but that is only for specific populations. Another assumption I had made, and most people make actually, is around the semantics of what does the word insurance mean versus the word socialized healthcare system. So uh, you have an awful lot of countries having healthcare systems that are social, statutory, insurance based. Then you have the US, which is so much to some extent, of a private health insurance system. And then you have systems more like the UK and the New Zealand, if you like, of a single payer and single provider to some extent. Now, these are ultimately, however, all labels that people put. The word insurance can be considered, if you like, dirty in some places. And equally, the word socialized can can also be seen as a negative thing in other places. Ultimately, what matters is how do you collect the money? How do you then spend it and what for, for a population. In the US, it was definitely easier to, if you like, follow the money. So if there is a thing like telehealth, a new modality, let's call it, if it actually can mean that you can get primary care provided more cheaply, and by cheap, I mean to whoever pays, both the insurer and the patient, then actually it flourishes. 
and it does happen. You can't stop telehealth in a US-style healthcare system. It will grow everywhere. There is less concern about the impact of actually telehealth, however, on the health and the healthcare of the people. And that's not necessarily a good thing, of course. Here, we have to be much more concerned and interested about the impact on resources and the wider system. Now, the Australian example should be similar to the US because, as you mentioned, there is so much access to any GP, if you like, or general practitioner or general practice that you want when you want it. And there is a lot of private health insurance as an additional form of payment to pub to the public system. But actually, the fixed costs to providers mean that they all, and because they all operate in very small units, individual clinicians are not salaried. They rely on that fee for service that they make by seeing every patient. And they don't want to lose that stable income to actually attempt enforce innovation in the same way in the US a payer would. One interesting thing that you mentioned in regards of adoption is also that when it comes to generations, people that are older, let's say 65 plus, tend to perhaps prefer in-person visits compared to doing a video consultation or just a doctor's consultation online. Now, one thing that is worth mentioning here is that the research was done prior to to COVID. But still, I wonder, you know, how do you see this issue? Is this an issue? Is it a challenge to get older populations the same level of convenience of care? Or did you notice or did follow up regarding that changing this year because of COVID? Because we've seen how many behavioral changes happened and how fast the patients and doctors adapted to digitalization. In the U.S., as I mentioned, lower co-payment was seen as a significant or sufficient driver for the payers to adopt telehealth, but actually, especially in rural areas. Uh, but they, they found that patients wouldn't necessarily, just for that reason alone, choose to go for telehealth. And anecdotally, clinicians I was speaking to would tell me that was because the patients, especially those that were more elderly, living in rural parts of, of California, they were interested, they were keen to still go and have that face-to-face -face interaction with their primary care physician. And that would be because that would make them come out of the house, also go to the shops in their local town where the practice was. So going to a doctor was still seen as part of their day-to-day -day life. So building it alone wasn't enough for people to choose it necessarily. Definitely for people over uh, a working age. Now, another example actually around this was in, the, uh, in Australia, where to overcome the issue you just described, when it comes to, be, again, in Australia, because of their immense rurality and sparsity in parts of the country, they developed telehealth programs for hospital-related specialist care. But what they did there was while the specialist doctor would be in their hospital in some 
larger city, if you like, the local nurse or doctor near where the patients live would also be allowed to earn a smaller fee when supporting a patient to undertake a telehealth consultation. So that was their way around of working with the issues that people not used to using digital solutions can face. Having said that, in the past year, we've all known that there's been a a major increase in the use of telehealth. That doesn't mean, however, that the digital skills have magically instantly increased for the relevant people. They still face the same issues. So what needs to happen is that the easiest of solutions are perhaps rolled out first uh, in a, if you like, emergency to then consider over time, how do we upskill the general population to be able to use more sophisticated apps and so on? One of your observations uh, was that the public healthcare systems of Australia, New Zealand and the UK lack the expertise in change management and purchasing support. How did you notice that? I thought that was very interesting because this explains why change happens so slowly to a certain degree, of course. I'll give you an example of where I saw this in New Zealand, actually. New Zealand has approximately 5,500 GPs working in, in about 1,000 practices, covering the whole of the country, of course. Now, above all of those almost 1,000 practices, there is a, an additional layer on the primary care side called the primary health organizations, PHOs, and there are 30 of them covering, again, the whole of the country. Now, before I went to New Zealand, and while I was there uh, to some extent, in my eyes, that was I saw this as a great opportunity to centralize, if you like, just about enough the resources, the skills, and the, and the expertise you need in change management. I already knew that having a thousand individual practices, being able to digitize and to do the change management in relation to that would probably not work, just as it's very hard to do it here in the UK as well. So that additional layer of the PHOs, I thought, looked like the right level that's not too national, but not too small either. Now, yes, some primary health organizations in New Zealand do offer a lot of change management support and beyond. However, I saw this only in a couple of, if you like, the really good examples. I didn't see that being the case everywhere. To some extent, that's because change management needs to be hands-on enough. You can't do it at a level too far from the front line. But what I think you could do is actually organize the change management system at the national level. You could have a helicopter or hovering team of change management experts going around a country, helping the primary care system at the local level to digitize. But you end up realizing that actually, when it comes to who would offer such a service, it would most probably be a consultancy, therefore expensive, and uh, not something that most healthcare systems can afford. And secondly, actually, what also happens is that the national or regional level decision makers don't want to, if you like, impose change management solutions because change management is all about what happens at the bottom up, if you like. 
and therefore you're left with that conundrum. You create something at the middle layer, such as in New Zealand, but it doesn't quite work because it doesn't have the push from the top or the pull from the bottom. But is it really the right way of thinking that consultancy is expensive if digitalization is supposed to optimize care, uh, provide better outcomes and thus decrease costs? I think the problem there is, of course, with most public health systems, most budgets tend to be looking at a relatively short-term future, don't they? For two reasons. First of all, because of political pressures, most politicians will tend to not be interested on what's going to happen to a the health and healthcare of their population in 20 years, if you like, or in 10 years even, when they may have an, an election coming in one year. And, and that happens everywhere, of course. So there's something about whether we allow sufficient uh, leaps of faith to be made in public healthcare systems to invest now in order to save later. And that's not the attitude we tend to have in, in public healthcare systems versus, for example, the US. US and New Zealand, both countries that were included in your research, are the only countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription medications. It's a very specific question, but I do wonder if you had any observations of that influence to healthcare or primary care while you were doing this research, or perhaps, you know, just uh, your personal observations coming from a country that does not permit that. I know that personally, I was surprised, you know, when I visited the US and you had billboards and um, ads on on airports already uh, for prescription drugs. Yes, and that's that's exactly more of a personal observation. And of course, everything in my report is to some extent. I, I, I found it equally interesting and odd to see as much advertising to the public as consumers of healthcare. Now, on the one hand, you would think in, in some ways uh, the, the, that push for advertising and awareness, public awareness of healthcare problems and solutions to them could be seen as a good thing. It allows patients to become more involved with their care, more informed of what they could be doing if they have any specific uh, healthcare issues. That's not a bad thing. Of course, uh, on the other hand, and working in healthcare, you, you can see behind, if you like, the advert, the shiny, glossy advert, the happy families or happy patient who suddenly becomes well after taking some medication. And that clearly shows that you can end up with instead over-medicalization, over-prescribing of and over, if you like, solutionizing of some things through medications when really the right answer may be a non prescription-based approach. Yeah, that's a huge question when it comes to opioids and a lot of new digital technologies are trying to address mental health to, to avoid looking for medicalization solutions, so prescription drugs. But going back to our original topic and digitalization of primary care, in your position inside the NHS, you oversee how primary care is digitizing. More specifically, 
You're looking at the life cycle of digital-related commitments and requirements in the GP contract. I wonder, what's your reflection of the past year? Has your work become more intense because things are now moving much faster than they did before and there's more interest from decision makers to digitize everything in, in healthcare? Yes, you're, you're most right. I, I've worked in the National Health Service here in England for almost 15 years and, I, and I've done all sorts of things. But um, most definitely my colleagues uh, and stakeholders who work purely around the digitization agenda and the rollout of IT and so on, like elsewhere, of course, in the world, they will agree that what's been achieved in the past year would have normally taken many, many years. Having said that, however, we were already, I must say, on a very good, steady and long-term journey in digitizing primary care or general practice more specifically in, in England, at least. Now, we already had a few years of pushing the electronic prescribing or patients being able to order repeat prescriptions online, patients being able to access some of their uh, patient record online or being able to book appointments online. Now, in the last couple of years, or actually two years ago, uh, we had agreed a very ambitious plan, and I was involved with that work, uh, including patients being able to access their full record, including the free text aspects of their GP record, the rollout of what we call online consultations and video consultations. And by online consultations, I mean the basically patients and or their carers filling in an online structured questionnaire, which then gets submitted to their practice. And, and then somebody at the practice, clinician or admin colleague, uh, accordingly and appropriately, would look at that, the answers and ask the patient to come in, order some uh, further tests, and so on. So that was agreed, as I said, in early 2019, January 2019, so almost two years ago. But we, the go live date for the online and video consultations was actually April 2021. And clearly, because of COVID-19, most GP practices chose to expedite the, the rolling out and deployment of those solutions and those online and video consultation tools and use those, use the telephone, use uh, other asynchronous text-based, if you like, communication with the patients. We were already on a very good journey and we were literally, if you like, a year before hopefully rolling all of that stuff. Anyway, of course, I would have rather if we hadn't expedited it because of the reason that we did, i.e. the pandemic, but we are where we are and we were quite lucky to be where we were, if you like, a year ago. I should finish by saying what made it easier to respond to COVID compared to some of the other countries that I visited was our approach to how we pay for primary care. Uh, the fact that we don't pay per appointment a fee-for-service or that the patients don't 
uh, made it much easier to roll out those solutions. I mentioned before that in the UK, GPs you know, tend to work for NHS practices and the majority of people are registered with an NHS practice and receive free-to-use services. However, it sounds like access is great, but I did hear from individuals that there's a lot of critique regarding the waiting times for a GP appointment. And at the same time, looking at the global digital health map, the UK or London-based company Babylon was a pioneer in giving people access to medical professionals and uh, healthcare through a mobile app. So I wonder, on one hand, Babylon did start to disrupt the GP practices and perhaps did it because of a lot of media attention also encourage wider debate regarding how fast the national GP or primary care can get digitized. In public and universal and government-based healthcare systems uh, of a single payer and if you like single provider, we always have to be mindful of what is right for the whole of the population and what is what has the right level of evidence before we move into a solution? And that, that happens everywhere. At the same time, you will have some disruptive, in a positive sense, innovators anywhere in every aspect of society who move faster than others and show you a vision of what the future could look like. And actually also, if you like, uh, show you the art of the possible. Those models, like the one you mentioned and others, are very welcome because they allow everyone else to see what good care in a digital first future could look like. We were already, admittedly, on our journey of moving the whole of the English NHS general practice towards further digitization, further use of online and video consultations, and those that have moved faster allow us to see actually what good looks like. The difference is scaling that up to the whole of the country is never an easy thing to do. Definitely. That's why I think smaller countries such as Estonia, Slovenia, even New Zealand, you know, they have 5 million people. From the size perspective, that's a huge advantage because it's just easier um, to do anything on a smaller scale. But anyway, one of the things that you mentioned in the report is that in Australia, there's no detailed patient record that follows the patient as they move practices. As we explained before, Australia allows uh, patients to go to different GPs, which can cause that their record is quite fragmented. Australia did establish an infrastructure called My Health Record, which should have all the patient data. And by today, a lot of people are signed up to the system because it's an opt-out system. So probably a lot of people didn't bother to opt-out. This sounds great. But the reality is, as mentioned by Dr. Louise Shepper in one of the previous episodes, that not all providers are connected to my health record. And 
in the end, this causes a catch-22 problem. Doctors can't rely on these records because they are incomplete and consequently, they are also not incentivized to add data to my health record. What I'm trying to get to here is, from your perspective, are national patient records an utopian desire? You know, is that even possible regarding, from your perspective, from what, what you observed? How does the NHS approach this issue. To some extent, my impression is that the best solution in the end is going to be a personal health record that the patient is going to carry around because of his diligent approach to gathering his data in a digital form. That takes me back many years. We've always thought of the ability of patients to have access to the record and own it, if you like, as a way of empowering patients to also own their, not only their record, but also their health and care. That's on its, in its own right and, and a valid quest. Now, however, when it comes to, if you like, country level patient records and at the national level, yes, we've definitely learned in the UK of how not to do things. There was a, a National Health Service a national program for IT uh, led by the, the then Department of Health in the mid or early 2000s to basically move the whole of the NHS in England towards a single centrally mandated electronic care record for patients and to basically connect general practices to hospitals in terms of a single record. Originally, that was meant to cost a couple of billion over a few years. In the end, 12 billion later, and actually, according to some of the people involved with the program, 20 billion later, so much, much long more than originally costed, that program didn't deliver everything it needed to do. And specifically, if you like, the a single care record service. Yes, they developed electronic prescribing and an ability to book appointments electronically for hospital care, a single NHS email service, but not a single national record. Here, we've learned from those, if you like, not successes of the 2000s. And we are developing, and I'm not involved with this work, but I'm aware of local health and care records being developed within smaller geographies where the bodies in healthcare, hospital, general practice, community services, social care, and the, and, and so on in smaller geographies develop a single standard and record of, or, or how to share the data within their individual uh, records. Clearly, these locally developed health information exchanges, if you like, in the NHS, in the in the format of local health and care records are important and they're great. But what we mustn't also do is make make them too small a, a, un, a geographies, if you like. Uh, they need to be big enough so that if patients move or need to be seen by somebody outside that geography, they still have access to, if you like, a good enough detailed record. And the national level. NHSX and NHS Digital that you mentioned could make further attempts to create the right standards and technology for the national sharing of patient data. That's, if you like, what we've done here. There are very few places in the world, aren't there really, that can boast to have such a kind of coherent digital infrastructure for the exchange of electronic health information, i.e. a single, if you like, national portal. And that reminds me of the Danish example. Again, a relatively small country 
that was able over many decades, admittedly, to build on their earlier successes and create such a, if you like, a, a national portal uh, that can access the different medical records, link between existing data sources, quality assure that information, I think, as well. But that happened because they have a homogeneous healthcare system. They have a single source, if you like, of who pays for healthcare. They've always been very keen on agreed standards for data exchanges between the different hospital and other healthcare providers and the authorities. And there is a high level of trust regarding what the healthcare sector would do if they access and once they access personal information, which has caused issues in, in different countries when they've tried to create uh, such national records. So it can be done, but it does seem more and more likely, doesn't it, that there will be a future where you will have a patient-owned record on a cloud, on a platform such as that of Apple, for example, which will connect to all the different healthcare system and hospital electronic health records, extract data from all of those different databases, and ultimately around the, allow the patient to then decide who to share that information with uh, through a single, I'll call it the Apple health record. And there are, of course, other uh, solutions that are also trying the, the, the same of basically creating single platforms to connect all of the different disparate sources. Personal health records are, I guess, a topic that could be discussed for hours um, in itself. I have only one uh, question left for you, and that is you have a bachelor's degree in medical electronics, a master's degree in medical diagnostics, and a PhD on biosensor development. So I wonder, how come you work more on the policy side and not in a development company with your broad knowledge. I am originally from Greece. And, and in Greece, if you like, hard science subjects are always seen as important. So I naturally went and studied engineering and then stayed in the science field. And I enjoyed that. However, ultimately, after a few years of being in a laboratory doing my PhD, I had enough of sitting there in my lab coat and um, sitting by myself doing experiments. All I knew I wanted was to be in an office and wear a shirt and a fancy tie. So I thought, well, there you go. I shall have to go and work in an office to wear my tie. And that's really what started my journey in the, pol in the policy Field. It is uh, great to see that the, the those that are creating policies have a good understanding of the technical and scientific side of how things work. So I'm sure you're uh, a very valuable employee. I hope so as well. Yes, absolutely. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.